welcome to a tale of two rivals plus one. A fantasy football podcast put on by your three-peat trash-talking, go-with-your-gut, loving-them-raw-stats champion, a losing-but-yet-numbers-loving nerd who's obsessed with spreadsheets and our ever-eloquent, wonderful hosting plus one to bring you the best fantasy football consensus we can for this podcast. Who am I joined by? You're joined by Dave FF underscore Spaceman Wright. Happy to be here. I've actually spent a lot of time with Todd recently, and it's been weird. I've experienced co-owning a team with him recently, and I'm ready for some more Todd, I guess. So let's do this. And Sean, I'm, I need you to balance them out. Don't even remotely act like this isn't going remarkably well in the first three rounds of co-managing. Like, it's going much better than I expected it would have. Todd's acting as if, like, oh yeah, man, I'm this banter guy, banter and banter, banter, and because he banters so much, we're not getting any trades done, and other people are getting trades done. So yeah. You know what it is? You've moved in with him now, Dave, and you're seeing what he's like not in prime dating hours. You're seeing what it looks like at 5.30 in the morning before you've had your coffee. The honeymoon phase is over. I've done like 80% of our trade talks. I don't know what this guy's talking about. Has it led to much execution, though? No, because he's cheap. Well, then it's just masturbation, Todd. What's the point? D- Dave just wants to win every trade. That's me. <laughs> Homeboy loves his calculators. Ken Edie, how are you, buddy? Well, I'm pumped to be back here with you, gentlemen. I'm upright for the first time in three shows. I'm sitting at the table. I have a tequila in my hand. Big shout out to Dwayne The Rock Johnson. His Terramana tequila, trying it for the first time, highly recommended. It's smooth, it's nice, it's not too overpowering, but it lets you know it's there. But more importantly, let's jump into it, boys. I have missed this phenomenally. Yeah, I mean, I just got a couple of quick things to share. I've been deep into like my top 100 uh, Devi rankings. I'm on number 97. So let's finish this recording so I can knock out the last three. It's been agonizing. I'm giving this a ton of thought. I have commentary on every player. I've broken down my criteria into seven different categories. It's really tough buying into like Devi guys differently because there's so much projection. Rakeem Jarrett only had 20 catches as a freshman. I think that he's going to take a huge leap. So I have him higher. It's much different than doing a dynasty rankings, but it's been a blast and a lot of fun. And that six-team co-manager league uh, league I'm in with Dave, we're off to a fantastic start. I thought, uh, Dave, you might want to uh, share about our our nice little build we got going on there. Yeah, 16-team Superflex League, and we've got Mahomes, Jefferson, and Akers. We got Jefferson at, like, pick 30 in the startup, which was insane, I thought. Nuts. And it's, like, full PPR and a half-point receiving first down. That's just insane type of uh, value for Jefferson. Yeah, I was thrilled with that land. And then getting Akers in the third round, and Mahomes being the two-pick was nice, too. It's also a full IDP, so I fully expect to be carrying us in that regard. But that's okay, Dave. I got your back. Dave, you got anything else you want to plug? Yeah, starting to move more into my 2021 rookie process. Really enjoying, starting to learn more about this class. I was on last night with the True North football crew, Ty and Travis. Uh, Late night, we talked for about two hours, and it was all about rookies, and it was a lot of fun. And yeah, just been on a lot of pods lately, and doing a lot for Rookie Fever as well. We're starting to do, each one of us, Shane, 
Finero and myself were doing an interview with another analyst about doing a rookie profile for for each week. So we're going to have like four shows a week for Rookie Fever. And we've gotten a lot of great feedback so far. It's been a lot of fun. And just enjoying doing fantasy football during my vacation, gentlemen. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm living the life, living the spaceman life. That's a fantastic idea you guys are pulling off on the uh, Rookie Fever over there. Kenny, what about you? Anything new going on? Rubbing the vacations in my face. Yeah, Dave, you're, I listened to your uh, Rookie Fever one with, I think it was with Zach Reed, right? You guys were talking about Rondell Moore. Yeah, he was, Zach Reed was awesome. Great episode. It was like 25 minutes, perfect listen. Fantastic. Nice job. Um, but yeah, for me, I know every once in a while we plug some current events. The world lost a Titan because Sir Tom Moore passed away. And for anybody who doesn't know that name, he was the World War II veteran who turned 100 last year in the United Kingdom and vowed to walk 100 laps around the garden in his yard to raise money for the national health care system. And he ended up raising $45 million to go towards paying nurses, supplying PPE, helping get extra equipment and the materials necessary to treat people who are suffering with COVID. And he just passed away in the last couple of weeks here. So I think that's worth acknowledging. We need more people like that in our stratosphere and very cool story. Yeah, check it out. I believe you can still donate to it if anybody feels inspired by it. That was a super cool story. I have not heard that myself, too. Uh, I will definitely be looking into that. Hey, question of the day. Yeah, so for this one, we're dialing it back. You know, we hit you with the Disney one last time, and we're trying to keep that nostalgia train rolling. So bringing it back to the childhood, the early years, sitting on the floor in front of the couch, bowl of cereal in hand, what was your go-to Saturday morning cartoon. 90s Saturday morning cartoons. Those were the days you couldn't stream them. You couldn't record them. Whatever was on, that's what you were watching. And sometimes it was just bad television, but you'd watch it anyway because it was a freaking Saturday morning cartoon. So I had spent way too much time on this question. I couldn't come up with the answer, guys. I, I thought some underrated ones, but were they the best? I don't know. Like Knights of King Arthur, Knights of Justice, Captain Planet song was catchy as heck. I don't know, guys. There was too many to pick from. The best part of Saturday morning cartoons was you could watch them. You didn't have to feel guilty for sitting down to watch TV on the weekend. You could do it. That was all you had to worry about, kids. No other responsibilities. Oh, those were the days. I really thought you were going to come up with something specific, but all right. I, like, I had some that I really liked that I think are underrated, but I couldn't think of my favorite. I, I maybe... Just a nostalgic rant of nothing. Yeah, it was all right. Maybe, all right. Say, that so was, maybe that I'll was say Scooby Doo. All right, Scooby Doo. You like that? Scooby Doo or Ninja Turtles? Yes, I do like that because it's actually picking something, Dave. I would have traded back. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that Scooby Doo is based on the five college systems and out in Amherst? That's probably on one of the all-time greatest Tale Two Rivals episodes because it was it mentioned Amherst, so it's probably one of the most listened to episodes we have. <laughs> Fantastic. So for me, mine was the uh, the 1994 Spider-Man that just recently dropped on Disney Plus, and I watched every single episode of it, and it was amazing. But it's the one where they bring in Dr. Octopus and the Punisher. There was even a comic book tie-in for it, even though they were like already using comic book stories. They adapted it, turned it into a TV show, and then made comic books using the same artist from the cartoon. It just, it had me. Little Kid Sean was all over it. What about you, Todd? Well, there's only one choice for me, man. And it's the great one. His airness. 
and Bo Knows fighting crime on Saturday mornings. I mean, the theme song alone. Wayne scores just in time. It's just like the epitome of a kid who's obsessed with sports when you're like 10 watching Wayne Gretzky and like Michael Jordan just beat up bad guys. It was phenomenal. Sean, quick question. Sorry, I didn't realize that Wayne Gretzky was active during the 1970s. (laughs) (laughs) They call him the great one. He can traverse time. That's right, guys. You guys weren't even born when Bo Jackson was playing. Oh, barely. Yeah, no, that was by far my favorite. You know what the only thing about that show, it actually used to make me angry, is I used to be like, why isn't Griffey on this show? (laughs) I was like, I did not understand why Ken Griffey Jr. got got shafted for not being on Pro Stars. But no, phenomenal show. Pro Stars. Great stuff. All right, fantastic. So jump right into the topic, gentlemen. Let's go. All right, so today, as we start to tease into our rookie dives, we're just going to be talking about the overall strategy that the Spaceman and the Banterman bring to their rookie evaluations. As you may have picked up on through the merciless banter on this show over the last year and a half, they come from pretty opposite dimensions. Dave, on the one hand, is a total stat whore. He's all about the spreadsheets, the deep dives. They get him excited. That's his nirvana. And on the other side of the coin, you have Todd, who's just a gut feeling, look at the tape, look at the stats, the raw stats, know it in your gut, play your hand, just Kenny Rogers, know when to hold him and know when to fold him mentality. So tonight, we're going to break that down into five categories, hear their different approaches, and I have a little little special guest, guys, who's excited to kick this off, and he has a little prediction for how this is going to go tonight. They will tear each other into pieces. Jesus Christ, this will be fun. That's fantastic. <laughs> I hope you would like that. I got a little bit of a problem with that. Why didn't you just play me sing in that part? We have that recorded. You don't have that part recorded. Well, we should. To tear each other into pieces? No, you don't. Plus, then we're flirting with a little bit of copyright infringement, Todd. True, true. (laughs) (laughs) I could just screw up the lyrics and we're good. (laughs) That's true. Also, I'm sorry, Sean, but Todd, I'm not so sure that I agree with your, your depiction of Todd. He just said he had seven criteria for his process for ranking Debbie players. What happened? Go with your gut kind of guy. What the heck? He has seven guts. That's what it is. <laughs> it's just like seven processes of like how to evaluate my gut. So <laughs> it's really not like uh, it's, it's like I would break it down another time for you, man. No, it's, it's nothing too deep. All right. So for our first category, we are going to take a look at what these guys think of just plain old raw statistics. The kind of thing that pop up on... The bio in the ESPN graphic when you're watching the game, the thing that you would find in a newspaper and a breakdown in the box score afterwards. Does raw stats matter anymore? Does just a player being able to say, I had a thousand yards in a 10 touchdown season mean anything if you can't put it into the further context of breakout age, college dominator, target share, air yards, all of Dave's favorite things? 
So, Todd, what do you think? Does does that matter? Does just that snapshot of yards and touchdowns make a difference? Before I jump into this, I'd like to thank my co-host, the Spaceman, for telling me I went off on a tirade on metrics in general and did not stick to the topic. So thank you for that. I did go back and focus on rookies. <laughs> hey, we're a team, Todd. We like yeah. to play these guys who are going to tear each other apart, according to Sean's uh, Hamilton intro. But don't say that like it's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the word you used to me was, your notes make no sense. Um, <laughs> which, and then I looked at my go, yeah, no, they didn't. I, don't, I totally did not focus on rookies. Anyways, yes, raw stats matter to me because it's just a natural place to start with evaluating a player. When you're going to make those metrics, they're eventually coming from a raw stat place to begin with. So I'm not denying the validity of like advanced analytics. And I'm afraid to, after a recent Twitter experience with a certain data guru, yikes. Yeah, I also love dropping Dave's name in a podcast because you just get head nods because everyone knows who he is. For Rostad, true. it happens all the time. I drop your name when I'm like, what do you want? I'm like, oh, I'm on a Tail Tree Rivals with the Spaceman, which just nods their head. It's hysterical. Erroneous, dude. That is erroneous. If my mom's not listening to our podcast and reading my articles... They're definitely not, so that's just BS. Um, <laughs> so, um, but anyways, yes, I do believe in raw stats, and the raw stats that matter to me, it's yardage. I would say mostly I'd be looking at scrimmage yards, tip, even with wide receivers, because if wide receivers are getting utilized in the rush, that means that coordinators are trying to get creative about getting the balls in their hand, that kind of makes me think they're a special athlete. Definitely receptions matter. I want to see how often they're getting the ball. Even TDs matter a little bit, because... If I see a high-level TDs, I'm going to go watch some film. Are they breaking big ones? Are these, like, you know, just some goal line carries? Like, what is it? But it's mostly yardage and receptions that matter to me. Yards per reception might pique me a little bit just to kind of, like, look into a guy a little bit more closely into film. Dave's probably, like, rolling over while I said something about yards per reception. But with raw stats, there's a ton of context, and I'm okay with that. Like, I'll look at the raw stats, and I will find out the conference. Who else are they competing with touches? Were there other major producers? How did they fare against top defenses? Was the production consistent game to game? I don't have like a formula or analytic for that, but I just look at those raw stats and then I go on in a case-by-case basis. So those counting stats, my opinion of that player situation, the eye test kind of eventually become my baseline. But again, this isn't like a anti-analytics kind of like point. And I'm coming around on incorporating that more into my analysis, but I've been really successful without it and I don't really want to change too, too much because, like, counting stats have worked for me. And, for example, like, I have nine fantasy football titles, and Dave has one in the times we've played against each other. And I've done that without a single spreadsheet. I don't believe him. I bet he has spreadsheets. He definitely has something to commemorate all nine of those titles. I'm not sure I want to know what it is. It might be like a hair doll or something weird, but there's something. Um, I can count in a Yahoo profile. That's it. that's pretty much it dude well yeah i mean you don't want to get too advanced with how you're counting right just keep it raw heck yeah dude it's worked for me for this one i got a success i'm one away from double digits buddy good counting so dave despite that braggadocio ending why is he wrong why do the raw stats need further context to properly evaluate them now the real issue and the biggest complaint i have with raw stats are that people use them heavily when they're trying to predict what's going to happen in the future. And it's pretty black and white how raw stats are not the best 
at predicting future performance. And that's my biggest issue is, especially as content creators, when we're trying to use raw stats to predict future performance, you're hurting people who are listening to you. You're making wrong decisions for your own teams, but then you're not making your the people consuming your content better at fantasy football. Now, there's even more context that needs to be applied when we're looking at college prospects because college and NCAA, it's not a level playing field. Not that the NFL is an incredibly level playing field either, but it's a lot more standardized than college football. There are small schools, big schools. There's Division One. there's FCS, there's, there's JUCOs, there's all kinds of things that need to be applied. And there's a lot less information on those players. And so people tend to rely on the raw stats more. So you're making... Not only are you making a jump from level of play, which makes raw stats less useful to predict what, how they're going to be, but when they're not, when you're not compare again, these are not apples to apples stats. Receiving yards on one team are not the same as receiving yards on another team, and people are making the wrong decisions when relying that too heavily. Now, do they matter? Yes, they do matter. As it's a great simple tool and it's effective at understanding to an extent of what's going on, but it's not the ideal way that I like to go about doing my fancy football analysis. And I think it, it it causes mistakes when you do use just that. And Todd doesn't just use that either. He has he uses context. And it's important to use context. People who really want to use raw stats, here's a simple thing that you could do that, that makes it so much easier to compare college prospects. Just put a per game after it. Divide them by games played. When you just do that, that makes receiving yards. It makes Receptions per game makes t- rushing touchdowns per game. All these different raw stats people like to use, and you put a per game in it, and it makes it so much more effective. And that's what I recommend people to do. Yeah. So the only thing I want to jump in on that is, is that it's not that like per game in averages is something I've used my entire time of playing fantasy sports. I don't consider that to be an advanced analytic, but that's I totally agree with you. Like you want to see if a guy is consistently producing, and if a guy's playing more than another guy, then obviously you should be able to see. This guy put up this many numbers in so many more games. That should immediately be something you figured out, like just from looking at the raw numbers. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that doing it on a per game basis is a good way of doing it. I just don't see that as advanced. And I made air quotes, but I'm on a podcast and so nobody can see those. I will say actually, before we move on, is are that some raw stats are effective at evaluating college prospects and predicting NFL success. Total yards scrimmage yards for running backs or even scrimmage yards plus return yards is actually a pretty decent metric for or raw stat for predicting future NFL success for running backs. But I usually just like to do a career average instead of just doing their best or last year or total. But that's just, I don't want to just poo poo and say, no, throw out all raw stats. Total yards actually is pretty decent for running backs. Todd, off the cuff. Who is a player in recent memory that you've taken and not, you know, looking past a big name guy, you know, looking past CeeDee Lamb? Who's like a downline item guy that you can think of where you saw the raw statistics fall into that category and just knew he's my guy. I'm going with my gut. I don't need to know the advanced analytics. Uh, I think Will Bowden was a guy I got really high on for that. Um, I still think the tape's out for him. He had some pretty good games this year. Yeah, picked up for Miami towards the end. Right, exactly. So that was a guy for me, like, and to tell me the truth, like, it's kind of taking those numbers. This is the part that you're going to ask this later. Then I actually watch the player. That's when I really buy into it. Once I see the numbers and the size and all that, and then I watch the player, then that's where I really commit. And the guy that 
probably really stuck out for me was Dallas Goddard, who I got as a third round uh, draft pick. And that was probably the most excited I've ever been about a, like a late draft pick ever. That would be a guy that I would say that past the numbers, the eye, like all those, the narratives kind of added up. Fantastic. All right. Moving into our next category, taking a look at these advanced metrics that gets Dave's pants so twisted up. Dave, we're going to start with you on this one. With this real deep dive that you've been making into advanced analytics and all the complicated metrics and the spreadsheets that you've really gone to a whole other level with here in the last like year and a half, how much are you living and dying by Target share, air yards, spark scores, breakout ages, college dominator, whopper, whatever other advanced analytics you want to put in there that you think are favorable. I'm sure you have 10 million in your holster ready to go that I don't even know about. So how much do you live and die by those? Which ones do you find are most indicative of future success? So I'll start from the beginning, I guess. Now, I think it's almost cruel of you to talk about whopper and target share and those type of advanced metrics, because I don't use those because they're not readily available going back far enough. PFF has them, but they don't go back far enough. Not enough small schools that leaves out players. For context, what does far enough mean? Like five years. Okay. What I would give to have dot or air yards going back 10 years, like back to just 2007 or 2009 would be exciting. So it was pretty cruel if you just bring it up, pour one out for air yards for college data. So But moving on, one problem with advanced metrics, when you first start using them and you don't know how to use them correctly, you can make a lot of errors. Just like with raw stats and you're using them, you can make a lot of errors as well. But early on, when I was like learning all this new stuff like breakout age, athleticism metrics, I just was got so goo goo gaga over it because it was just this new thing to me and I was grossly misusing it. Over time now, I've spent a lot more time trying to refine my process and figure out what actually matters and not just what sounds good. And something that always sticks out to me is breakout age, but I no longer look at it as like, oh my gosh, this person had an age 18 breakout age. That means they're automatically better than someone who had an age 19 breakout age. I don't view it that way anymore. What I do is I kind of group it into age 18 to 20 breakout age. If you hit that check mark, then you're golden. That hits my criteria. And it's actually a lot more effective when you're scouting wide receivers that way. And then also too, like, because I was so nuts about breakout age, I realized that it only actually really matters for, for wide receivers for the most part. Breakout age doesn't really matter for quarterbacks, doesn't really matter for running backs and tight ends. So learning what stat matters where is important. And that's kind of what a bad rap that analytics have gotten is one, that they make things too complicated. The goal of an advanced stat or a metric should be to simplify something that's complicated and make it easily presentable. And in the past, I've just gotten too crazy about, oh, this is so complicated, and it just doesn't explain what you're trying to say very well. My goal is to not get too fancy. What is the most effective stats that are predictive, but also simple for people to learn from? And those two stats that I use the most right now are market share stats, which are percentage of their team offense type stats, so percentage of receiving yards, percentage of touchdowns combined, or yards per attempt, like team play or team attempt. Those are two really effective stats for running backs and wide receivers that I really rely on. And besides that, like athleticism stuff doesn't really matter for wide receivers. Doesn't really matter. Might for running backs more, but... What about those BMIs? Yeah. And well, see, BMI, I used to care a lot. I've decided now recently, I've done a lot of work on it. BMI does not matter. And that is probably unpopular for a lot of people. But even for running backs, 
I actually had a nice conversation with Todd. He called me up on Saturday and we talked about BMIs and the BMIs for running backs mirrors like for successful running backs. If you look at the curve for successful running backs, it exactly mirrors the curve for overall running backs in the NFL. It like, so yeah, there's not very many successful running backs with a BMI under 27. Well, there's not a lot of B- running backs with a BMI under 27 in the NFL in general. So to be the curves not to match, you would expect a deviation in the curve for the successful running backs, and it doesn't. So it just shows me that it doesn't matter. It's more of it describes it, it confuses people. Let me jump in on something you just said before we move away from it, because you, you piqued my interest. So if BMIs don't matter for wide receivers, are you just or running outright, backs or running backs? Well, I know, but I'm I'm specifically focusing on wide receivers for this question. Are you then automatically dismissing concerns for guys in this class like um Rondell Moore, Devonta Smith, uh, Kadarius Tooney, these guys that are a little shorter, definitely, you know, they're well south of 200 pounds. Does that not phase you at all in your evaluations? With BMI is no, it doesn't matter. Even Rondell Moore actually probably has a decent BMI because he's kind of stout, but no, he does. He actually has a really good BMI. I'm trying to, what he's what, like 5'9", like 180? Five, yeah, 5'9", 180, but, yeah. but overall... I actually have more concerns about, I have don't have much concerns at all about Devonta Smith's uh, BMI. I have more concerns about his age-adjusted production. That being said, I still probably like Devonta Smith more than some analytics people, but I'm more concerned about his college production than some BMI metric that considers everyone in the NFL overweight if you were to actually use it. So, and it's not recommended for, by health nuts to use BMI at all. So I think BMI is totally overrated. I care way more about age-adjusted production, and I should have probably mentioned this when I'm talking about metrics, what I care about is age-adjusted production. That's the, that's the holy grail for me and how I, and the goal is to, I want to compare prospects to other prospects in their class and also previous prospects who have entered the NFL and to see how those prospects have fared in the NFL. That's kind of the whole idea of advanced metrics. Fantastic. So it's just, it's using deep context to create deeper context. Is that a fair summation? It accounts for context. And it's supposed to try to put everyone on a similar playing field and it makes adjustments to make it easier to get a picture of everyone. And I will say, analytics is actually easier to figure out who isn't good. It's tougher to figure out whose ceilings and stuff like that with analytics, but really effective tool to figure out, to establish red flags on players. But anyway, I could go on all night, but I gotta, I gotta, I gotta cut myself off. All right, well, I got a question for you before you do. Like Todd, off the cuff, who is a player that you have used advanced analytics to identify as somebody that you can nab as, you know, early third round rookie pick and lower and not Gabriel Davis, because you plug that one a lot. <laughs> uh, Darnell Mooney, I talked, I, he kind of stood out for me early yeah, on. some pop. His production profile looked pretty good. Perfect. Now, Todd, you're on record saying that this can be handy, this stuff, and it has its place, but that it's not necessarily crucial to success. Why aren't you buying in on this as much? So before I dive into that, I thought that Dave would like to know that in my Devi top 100, towards the end of my list, I started using market share for like some more sweepers. So that has been something that Dave brought uh, me. He's and a I convert. It. I, it's actually goo. Jaden Wally from Mississippi State made my list. I liked it. I just have to say that because we're not streaming, I have tears running down my cheeks. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dave, this is the reason why I use the market share piece, because he plays for Mississippi State, which is Lynch's offense. You know, they're throwing a lot. 
but he had a huge market share for that for that offense as a true freshman, and he played QB in high school. So I like Jaden Wally for anybody who's actually listens to plays Debbie, but we never talk about it. So, anyways, I'm trying to change a little bit with the analytics piece. Actually, Dave actually brought up a great point is that when you start using analytics, you can use them wrong. And I totally feel like I would use them wrong to a degree. And I've done really well without them. That's really it. It's not to discredit metrics, like analytics. This is about how I go about it currently. And as I grow, I share that with our audience. But anyways, I think the biggest thing that's helped me with my my rookie process is literally just playing Debbie. And I play in C2C leagues. I call everything a Debbie league. But I play Campus of Canton League, so I start college players. And I complete in a college league. And I'll use those raw stats. And I'll be able to follow those guys and compete with other people. But I feel like because I play in those leagues, I understand those contexts of those players more. I know their teams. I know their competitions. I've, you know, I've watched film on them. And that's better than an average dynasty player. However, I do like a few metrics that are more like secondary pieces that kind of be like tiebreakers for me. The spark score is something that I like for rookie rankings. But it's more of like a secondary measurement for me if I'm deciding between a few players. It's kind of like, you know, I got these guys in a tier. I'm not really sure where to place them. That can kind of help break it down after I've done my counting stats for that final season, the career production, the film review, and just from my initial reaction. But another one that Dave pointed out I like is, and I do like breakout age, which is something that Dave kind of sold me on. But... I'm not somebody who's going to write somebody off because there's ne'er to support a lack of breakout age in that. Dave always picks on Bama about talent needing to rise. Like Najee Harris is the perfect example. Najee Harris played with four to five other NFL running backs there. Guys from Bama, LSU, Clemson, Georgia backs. They just need to break in and earn some more work, but they still have to respect the fact that there's NFL talent also on their team. So those measurables are not really accounting for like the competition, the depth, and those kind of things. But also, like honestly, the best way to evaluate rookies is watch the freaking games, man. You can look at a box score and look at them against a quality opponent. Were they trusted in an SEC showdown? Did they get any meaningful touches in playoffs? How did they look? Guys that we're going to be talking about later, Kendall Milton, Johnny Michi, Joseph Nagata, could all be first future first-round picks in rookie draft considerations after this year. But they all have narrative support why they have that lack of breakout age and why we're not really sure about them at this point. Those are three guys I'm really confident about that won't, might not hit on certain metrics. So, Todd, you just you bridged us perfectly right into our next segment, so we're just going to roll right into it. Is It was like I meant to do that. Perfect transition. So how much game film do you actually watch? Are you watching it raw and just absorbing the whole game? Do you go back and look for specific guys that you're keying in on? And kind of more importantly, what are the things you're looking to pick up on? What are the con- the contextual pieces that you're looking to pick up from that game film? So I try to watch as much raw film as I can. Debbie Deep Dive, Brandon does a great job of cutting film. Dynasty New York has stuff. IDP guys has stuff. You know, whenever you can get all 22 film, that's great. I also rely on like highlights from time to time just because... I'm married and I have a child. Like, I do my best with what I can watch. The astronauts have great film, too, for anyone. Goodness. Yes, they do. My bad. They Shout have out to the astronauts. Phenomenal film. I do use that. But yeah, so when I'm on a film, it really depends by the position. For a QB, 
I want to see how they respond in a pocket, whether they can step up in a pocket, how they deal with pressure. Are they immediately going to try to stay within their pocket? What their mechanics look like? The way they release the ball. Is the ball going to be in a line or is it going to kind of be like a lollipop? Like when the guy catches the ball, are they stretching out or they hit him in stride? You know, stuff like that. Can they run? Do they have that rupturing upside? A guy that I'm actually really liking on film that I think is a little under the radar is Grayson McCall out of uh, Coastal Carolina. So, like, that's a guy I have my eye on because on film, he pops. But then, like, with running backs, are they explosive? Do they have the speed? Are they shifty? I want to know if they can, if they're shifty more than anything. Can they break tackles? Make you miss and make you break tackles. That's the biggest part. But also, when I watch them run, are they running through a freaking crater? Or are they actually getting it done in, like, smaller creases? Because that was something that stuck out with me also with wide receivers. Like, Henry Ruggs, whenever I saw a highlight of him, he's got, like, nobody near him which is partly his athleticism, is also partly scheme. So with wide receivers, ball skills, high point catches, releases, getting separation, like route running, Dave doesn't, Dave always says something about route running, but route running creates separation that gives you opportunities to get the ball. Jerry Judy, phenomenal route runner. Jamar Chase, outstanding route runner. Those are guys that I like because they know how to be able to be better than their competition by doing the little things that creates those gaps. So those are the kind of things too. And with tight ends, I want to know if you're fluid. I want to know if you can run. If you're like heavy footed, not into it. Because I, I don't think that that's going to translate very well at the next level. I feel like I just threw a lot out there in a very short amount of time. But long story short is I try to watch as much film as I can. I actually just did a, a film grind on Quentin Johnston, Aeneas Smith with Debbie Deep Dive. It was a lot of fun. But you know, there's only so much time in a day, man, but I try to grind as much film as I can. So I'm going to ask you for another name drop. Who is somebody that, and you know, just in the last like one, two, three years, not a current about to be rookie. So we're talking somebody who's already come into the NFL. Now you already said Henry Ruggs, but I'm looking for a different name. Somebody that the consensus has been pretty high on, but you've watched the film and just been like, mm, no, no, I don't think so. Michael Pittman. I didn't like the way Michael Pittman moved. I think the numbers kind of pointed to why he didn't break out sooner. I feel like a lot of Michael Pittman was just being bigger than his competition. And I, I honestly not even going to say that I'm, I'm right about Michael Pittman, but that was a guy that stuck out to me as a guy I wasn't high on. Not to say that I wouldn't have picked him at the end of the second round, but most people are looking at him as like early second round. And I didn't, I didn't see that in him. So yeah, Michael Pittman was one that I, um, I wasn't too high on after I watched the film. Nice. Well, time will tell. We'll see what he brings this year, but I think he might be right. I he he's got he's got opportunity. Yeah, if Ty's gone too, and they don't draft <laughs> anybody, he, he can suck as long as he's getting the ball thrown to him. David, over to you. How much film do you actually watch? Do you feel like there's anything really to gain from it that the numbers can't tell you and you can't find in your spreadsheets? What's it looking like on your end of the block? I don't watch any film whatsoever. I might watch an occasional, I might be forced to watch an occasional highlight clip that someone puts on their Twitter line and I, and I just happen to click on it. And it's, and then I remember what that I, I just hate watching films. So then I have to quickly exit out. But in all seriousness, though, I do you like watching football games? Like, do you actually like watching football games? I, I do like watching football games. I watch a lot of football games and I don't count that as film. I count that as watching a game. I think watching film is, is slowing it down, looking at individual skills and along those lines and watching an entire game. You can only watch where the camera's pointing. You can't see how they're doing off the ball and things along those lines as far as route running, 
uh, blocking, anything like that. So I just... That comment just blew up in my face. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the past, I've I've probably been a little bit more extreme that like, hey, films overrated, like overrated and, and a lot more cr- critical of film watching. I think now that I'm a little bit more balanced and I think that I just have... I think it's hard to become really good at watching film. There are people like Todd who has, who's had a lot of success doing it, but Zach Reed, who I had on Rookie Fever recently and talked about Ron, uh, Rondale Moore, he is someone that is a really go-to because he has a specific process and he breaks it down. He doesn't, I don't think he overweights things too much. And now, do I always agree with everything he says? No, but I just really respect how process-oriented he is and how he has a system that is set up to account for human biases and human error that a lot of film watchers don't do. And then what I really value is he highlights skills, traits, and plays on the field that translate to NFL success. He's not just describing me what happens on the field. Oh, that was a really great catch. Look how he went up and high caught the ball. I don't care. I want to know what he's doing that's going to translate to the NFL. And I shouldn't just say Zach isn't the only one who does this. J. Mike Check from Dynasty Dummies and the the DFPN Network and the Open Bar Pod does a great job at diagnosing film. And there's a lot of great film watchers out there. Right now, my circle is very small. I'm only listening to Todd, J. Mike, and Zach because I need I I don't have time to sort through all of it. And I just go to people that I think that are one awesome people, and two, I really respect their process. Because being good at watching film is a very, very highly skilled ability. It's not everyone can do it. There's got to be a special type of person to do it correctly. And I have a lot of respect for people who do do it the correct way. I just know I can't work with data and have fun playing around my spreadsheets like a little amateur nerd. I can't do both. So I go to people I can trust. And I should just say, just because I don't watch film and I'm an amateur numbers nerd, who likes to play with spreadsheets, doesn't mean that I'm doing it the right way. Doesn't mean my way is necessarily better. Do I prefer my way? Yes. Am I biased? Yes. However, there are film watchers and people who like watching film or whatever, digital, whatever you want to call it, because does film even exist anymore, that are better at doing and analyzing football than I am. So I just have a preference. Also, Film and numbers people, it's awesome when we disagree and I can learn things that I might not necessarily have gotten before. I don't necessarily want to be in an echo chamber all the time. There is a value from listening to the other opinions and explaining yourself and presenting your side of the thing. And it's awesome when we both come to the same conclusion because that just gives me more confidence in my opinion too. Also, if push comes to shove, if I feel a lot of conviction about some numbers in my analysis, I'll rely on that versus the film. I have a confession. I was totally a highlights guy almost exclusively until about two years ago. And now I'm trying to grind more film. And I think playing in Debbie and getting to watch guys as you're actually playing them and not just waiting for them as prospects has kind of like encouraged me to do that more. So even watching highlights have done pretty well. But yes, grinding film and watching highlights are two completely different things. Todd, just a lot of confessions tonight, Todd. Wow. He's going full Usher, and I love it. So into our next segment, draft capital. So as we approach the NFL draft, right, I feel pretty comfortable knowing both of you and the way you operate and saying that 
might not influence your rankings as much as it will other people's. But that being said, how much does a team's draft capital that they sink into a player influence the way you think about that player? Because as we know, NFL draft capital is not bulletproof. For every single Tyreek Hill that falls down to the fifth and still pops and is a clear difference maker for a team, you've got Henry Ruggs, you've got Nikhil Harry, you've got Darius hayward Bay, Kevin White, Laquan Treadmill, and the list just goes on and on. So what the team thinks and how they draft a player, how much does that fit into your evaluation of that player? Dave, let's start with you. Actually, draft capital really matters a lot to me. And what I think draft capital does is one, NFL teams have the some of the best professionals. Like I am such an when I when we were talking about I'm an amateur. I am a hardcore amateur nerds per, nerd stat person. 100%. NFL teams, most of them have the best of the best. Some of the most they're doing things I don't even think I know are possible. They have data that would I would probably pass out if I just even looked at it because of pure excitement. They have so much more access, so much more technology that they're just way ahead of where I where what I can possibly even imagine. Take a deep breath, buddy. Take a deep breath. It's I'm just okay. excited just talking about it. So, and then they also have like really good scouts and re- and people Now, is every scout good? Probably no, probably not. There's good scouts and bad scouts. But I guarantee you that there's a lot of amazing scouts in the NFL. That's their professionals. They're in the the best league in the in the world for football. And what draft capital does is it kind of collapses all of those skills, millions of dollars is being invested into, and gives you what the NFL team thinks of a player. And my goal is in my process is to try to, with my numbers, is try to beat draft capital. That's before the NFL draft. My goal is to try to come up with a process that beats draft capital. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do. And then after that, because, you know, NFL teams, they miss because there's just things that they can't control. And they get they also get hung up on the wrong things just because we're all humans. And, and that's how it works. But after the NFL draft, what I like to do is combine the two and then try to improve on draft capital, improve on, on my process to even further strengthen the numbers. And that's the idea is draft capital is Draft capital is the best tool that we have at predicting NFL success. Like as far as numbers are concerned, that's just how it is. So I, it really is big in my process now. Like small school guys, they there's there's certain biases in the NFL. Don't get me wrong. Small school guys get drafted later on the average. S- sometimes uh, smaller players get drafted later, or s- certain flaws get drafted later. And you can take advantage of that because the NFL has its certain things that they're not always right about. But in general, draft capital is so effective to use. I think one of, and I'm going to jump in instead of asking you a question and just give the answer to it. I think one of the most salient things you said to me last year during the draft when we were watching it live and doing our rapid reaction pieces was when the Bengals took T. Higgins at 33. And I don't want to, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So you want to break down why that was such a big deal to you that he went at that specific pick? So there's two parts to this. And the first one is almost cliche because anyone who listens to the NFL draft has heard this by now. But the team who has the first pick in the NFL draft on day two has had that entire 24-hour period to reassess, to look at the board, prioritize their players, review their strategy. And there's a lot of confidence going with that pick. They have a lot of extra time to gather their thoughts. So that's the first part. The second part, 
which I actually believe more of for at least for, for T. Higgins in particular, was there were some production concerns with T. Higgins. He did not have the same production profile a lot of the other top wide receivers did. Well, he had more than Henry, than Henry Ruggs, but that's, saying, that's not saying a lot. But there were concerns because T. Higgins was benched a lot or protected because Clemson was destroying teams. And in the second half, he wouldn't be getting the same production that other teams were be giving their, their star players. Same thing with Travis Etienne, I believe. I believe he'd have a, over 100, 150 yards and a half, and he wouldn't get like more than two or three touches the rest of the game because they were protecting their players. So when the Bengals spent that kind of capital with that kind of confidence on T. Higgins, that kind of answered some of my production concerns because the NFL was telling me something by selecting him at that point and in, in that selection. So Todd, over to you. How much stock do you put into the team drafting capital? I put a lot of stock into it. I mean, it's pretty basic. You know, if you spend more money on something, you tend to value it more. I think before I get into like people pretending like it doesn't matter, it doesn't change my entire evaluation. I think it more affirms certain guys that I'm like higher on than most. A good example would be like, I thought about this like after the fact. When CD Lamb got drafted by the Cowboys, I was pissed. And we'll talk about why in the next part. But the draft capital they spent on a position they did not need reaffirmed that, yes, this guy is special. And it's a guy that I was insanely high on, like, in September. That was kind of like how draft capital helped me. So let's also take, you could hit on Tyreek Hill in your third round of rookie drafts, right? You're not taking him in the first round. Or you're not, or you maybe might reach him if you have a massive set at the end of a second round. If you said you knew what Tyreek Hill was going to be coming out of college, you're a liar, and nobody in the NFL did either because they didn't spend the capital on him. You know, you could have said, "Oh, I felt like he could be good." They don't you know, draft him with that major capital. Good for you. That's solid. But that doesn't disprove anything about what, like, the kind of capital used in your rookie drafts because NFL teams didn't use that capital. You're going to be using higher picks on guys that were higher picks. I feel like the funny thing is that when when Ruggs was the first wide receiver off the board, that's an example why you don't just live and die by it. Because nobody lived and died by that choice. A lot of people question whether you should have been the first wide receiver off the board. So I was going to loop into that and ask you, because you were were pretty out on Ruggs, if I remember right, from last year before the draft. I was huge on Ruggs. I was huge on Ruggs. Oh, I thought you were out on rugs. No, no, no. I, I, I started being out on rugs later, right? Once I started diving deep because he was a guy that, like, you, you know, you get so caught up in his athleticism and all that. Oh, the dunking YouTube was great. All but right, so point, let me ask you this then to tease it out. Were you, yeah. when you started to get out on rugs, was that pre-draft or post-draft? Right around the draft. So, like, pre-draft, but it was pretty close to it. I'd say it was pre, like, Todd, I remember we had a lot of conversations way before the draft in February, in March, and you were starting to fade him a little bit because you told me, yeah, yeah Dave. I was going to say, I thought, I thought we were all kind of pushing him down and out. I loved him for a while, but what really pushed me out on Ruggs was it was film. When you watched him, like, he didn't really do a lot of things well, and a lot of the times that he made big plays, he had, like, massive amounts of space to work in which most Alabama wide receivers do too, which is not a product of like, query his athleticism has something to do with that. But that was more like scheme-based. So here's my question. You're, fi- you're trending him down. You're fading yeah. him. And then the draft happens and Vegas takes him first wide receiver, first round with, I think, the 12th pick. Like crazy high. Right. 
on a team that has a lot of needs. Did that make you second guess you're fading him? Did that give you doubt? No. I'll, I got a better example for this, okay? Justin Herbert, all right? Justin Herbert made me, like, when the Chargers took him, that made me second guess. And I remember telling us, when we did our rookie preview, I said that he should not make it past the 107 Superflex draft because of his draft capital. And I'm pretty sure if we go find the clip, I also say, I don't like Justin Herbert. Like, I literally said, because he's a quarterback with a top 10, like, draft capital, you have to consider taking him in the first, like, seven picks. But with a wide receiver like that, you could see wide receivers outproducing from the second round or such. You know what I mean? I think it goes position to position for me. With wide receivers, now I'm not going to live and die by the capital, but if a team's going to invest first-round capital in somebody, and then there's a guy I'm kind of like side-by-side with that guy, and that guy gets like mid-second, that's going to change my evaluation on pushing that other guy a little bit because I was so close. So if I'm close on two guys, the capital will sway me. So it does have a lot because that could be the, the what swings me towards one guy versus another, you know, that are in a similar tier. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's not going to move a guy from seven all the way up to one, but it no, could give the guy an edge of, you know, if you were Jerry Judy versus CeeDee Lamb last year, right? That was a really close argument of who was really the number one receiver. Draft right. capital could give one the edge over the other for you. It could. I mean, in that situation, I think we know my feelings on CeeDee Lamb that nothing was going to change my mind. But, you know, it could. Right. I just mean as a general application of what you're saying. 100%, dude. But the other thing, though, too, is like what it could do is if you're like the top of tier two and then you get significant draft capital, you might get pushed into like the bottom of tier one for me. You know what I mean? And get put into another category. So, yeah, those that's how draft capital used for me. So it is important, but it's not going to change my entire system. And I don't think it should for anybody else. Fantastic. Moving into our last criteria, the landing spot. So the draft happens, they spend that capital. And we know that that was a game changer for especially like the rookie running backs last year, right? So we all know that that's fantastic for those guys. But what I want to know is when you get to the later part of the draft, right? Because anybody can pick these top names is when you're starting to get to guys like we've been talking a lot about Mecole Hardman. He's the wide receiver three on a team that has their tight end is really their primary pass catcher. Adam Troutman, Cole Komet, Dave's guy, Gabby Davis, Darnell Mooney, who we all loved, who are slotting in as the wide receivers three, four, the tight ends two or three. How far down a depth chart are you willing to chase some of these guys? Or conversely, can their landing spot just totally turn you off completely? And even when it comes to High name guys. So like Jerry Judy going to Denver, right? How do you rectify that? CeeDee Lamb going to Dallas and having to compete with Michael Gallup and Amari Cooper for targets. AJ Brown, Dave, you and I talked about this ad nauseum when he, his first year coming out, being paired with Mariota. Like we really thought that that would hurt him. And it did in the short term, but long term, it's clearly worked out. Terry McLaurin beating all the odds in Washington without a quarterback and still being fantastic. So how far down depth charts are you willing to reach for guys you like? And what does it take for you to be turned off by a landing spot? Todd, go ahead. I think for me, it's more, there's got to be some more context to it. You got to look beyond that first year where a guy's drafted. So when I'm looking at a player where they're drafted, if I believe in the talent and I believe in like 
it might take a year for a spot to open up, and I want to know what contract situations look like for guys later on. That might do it. But I also, because, like, if we want to give context here, when we start talking about that, I don't feel like a lot of those guys were Barry. Like, T. Higgins was, like, you know, the wide receiver three, but A.J. Green is aging, and those air yards will be up for grabs soon. Walking sucks. Hartman, like, could actually have a more prominent role with that. Cook and Jimmy Graham were both getting older, so those are guys that were getting up there in age in their contract years. John Brown's a free agent, you know? So outside of A-Rob, like, the entire Bears receiving core is ambiguous. So those are kind of situations where if I believe in the talent and they're getting buried on the depth chart, they're probably good value where I'm taking them to. Nobody that's going to be slotted as a third, fourth wide receiver is going to cost me a ton of capital. So if I believe in my process and I believe in that player, that's a phenomenal stash. And sometimes when a guy gets stashed, an injury, or maybe they just outperform somebody, and then I get surprised. But I'm looking beyond that first year in my investment and hoping for maybe a surprise. Now, in terms of landing spots for studs, I mean, it's obviously huge, but it's not going to change my, it shouldn't change my rankings drastically. It did last year with CEH, where I loved Swift, but I put CEH over it, and that lesson has been learned. I kind of fell in love with some draft spots a little bit in situations last year, and I'm going to not kind of fall into that trap again. But when we're talking about a bad landing spot, again, you know, comes down to the talent. You know, I was higher on Brown than Metcalf, and he had a worse spot in my opinion. I I did not like Brown landing with the Titans offense because it's built around a a freaking tank. I believed in Judy. We all know my feelings on, you know, the God of Lamb. But if I wasn't high on the guy to begin with, and it was a bad spot, obviously I'm out. But if it's a guy I still believe in, I'm still going to believe in the player. Talent's going to rise. But yeah, it's that simple. If I believed in the player, I'm going to believe in the player. But the landing spot might adjust how I feel about players that I put next to each other. Fantastic. Dave, what about you? How much do you sweat landing spot? How much does it change your evaluations? I should also say with any of these questions we've asked tonight, I think it's a little disingenuous for me to just say they nothing. it doesn't matter. I think all of this stuff matters. It One, it's just sometimes it's hard to measure. Or two, it just doesn't matter as much as maybe popular opinion does. And for me, landing spot is one of those things that just don't matter as much to me. And what I mean is, is like, did anyone when they were drafting Chris Godwin or training for Chris Godwin after year one think that Tom Brady was going to be his quarterback last season and go to the Super Bowl? Or that Bruce Arians was going to be the coach? Or that Jameis Winston was going to be around? Like, there was so many ifs, ands, or buts about landing spots. Uh, offensive lines change rapidly from year to year. Very volatile position but, and free agents, more draft picks come and go. And would we have thought two years ago that the Patriots would have the least amount of dynasty fantasy assets in fantasy football, arguably? Probably not. There's just landing spot is so hard to predict. And I think a lot of the time we kid ourselves when we think that we can measure how good a landing spot is. And Kansas City is a prime example of that last year. Everyone was, and, and it, there's so many different examples that that's a case for. Now, I will say it does matter. And if I, the way I use it is, yeah, sometimes if it seems like it's an insurmountable depth chart, I will take that into effect and I will maybe move a guy back a slot or two. Or what I'll also do is if it's a, what I think in my, you know, trying to use my rational, you, it's funny how people can paint a landing spot it's narrative street. Anyone can paint a landing spot. It's pretty easy to do 
to to paint it however you want. You can do so many different things to to describe landing spots. But for me, if I like a landing spot, I think it just gives me more confidence in a player. And maybe it can be a tiebreaker for me. But I'm not going to let that outweigh draft capital because that's how AJ Browns happened. That's how Jonathan, like Jonathan Taylor, like I love Swift, but like I'm not, did I, was I going to move Jonathan Taylor up because he just landed or like he landed with the Colts or vice versa? The, there's a lot that goes into it. You just can't use this one part of your analysis when you have four years or three years of college and that you that you can use for analysis. So ultimately, I think, does it matter? Yes, but I think you make it, when people try to kid themselves of how they can predict how things are going to be in the future, you'd be surprised how often we get it wrong. So that it doesn't weigh in as much for me. Thank you. You actually just inspired of my number one lesson. I mean, I kind of briefly talked about it, but like, I moved Swift down like three or four spots when he got drafted by the Lions because I have no faith in their organization. I still don't. I still don't trust the Jets. But the point is, is that like, I'm still going to trust the player and where they're evaluated. I got like all twisted up when I saw, it was an interesting tweet where they took the five uh, biggest running back prospects and put them in, you know, potential landing spots. And Etienne was with the Jets. And as a Patriots fan, that hurt me on a different level also. But, like, I looked at it, and I was like, why all of a sudden do I not like that? Like, why is that? Like, I, I've been high on Travis at the end for, like, three years. And now because he's a New York Jet, all of a sudden I'm going to just not believe in him anymore? And that's what happened with me with CEH with, like, Swift. I got caught up with him being part of the Chiefs. Rightfully so. I mean, that's a phenomenal offense. But, you know, the lesson was learned. And Swift was a guy that I was high on for a long time. And I'm not doing that again. I'll tell you that much. All right, so moving into the closing arguments here. Give me the quick closing argument, the quick summation. It's your Marty McFly and a secret to my success. You're in the elevator with the CEO. What's your two-second pitch? Dave, go ahead. What matters and what doesn't? Age-adjusted college production matters a lot for me. Market share, yards per attempt really matter. Breakout age really matters. Accuracy for college quarterbacks those kind of, and then draft capital, draft capital, draft capital. And then what I do with that, and then I go to my respected film people like Todd, like J. Mike Check, like Zach Reed and others. Well, that's probably actually all that I really trust. But, and I'll take their input, see if it matches mine, adjust something that I might have misunderstood and move forward. And then maybe, maybe landing spot will break ties for me. But often, more often than not, I will misapply landing spot and when I should have just trusted my original thought process. Fantastic. Todd, over to you. What matters? What doesn't? Sum it up. All right. It's going to start off with career production. Uh, that's usually going to bring me to a game log where I want to see them against certain players uh, with certain teams. And then from there, once I got the college production, I'm going in the film study, seeing what I like. And then I'm going to start digging into that player a little bit more. Like, you know, who were they with? You know, what happened with them early part of their year? So, you know, it really is about finding the narrative for me. And yeah, I understand narrative is a very subjective way of going about it, but that's the way that I do it, you know, and I trust, I respect people that go about that objective process, and I trust it too. I mean, for me, it's just not the way that I do it yet. So for me, it's all about going to that career production, particularly focusing on the other going to the NFL, looking at that film, and then really diving into that player's narrative and trying to figure out why the numbers and the film speak to the way that they are. Fantastic. All right. Well, that does it for our rookie evaluation strategy breakdown. You heard it from the numbers master himself, Dave Wright. You heard it from the gut check banter man. 
Guys, let's take it out here. Dave, where can they find you and what do you have going on? You can find me at, excuse me, at FF underscore Spaceman on Twitter. I'm a writer for DLF. I got to start writing for DLF again soon. And you can find me over on my Patreon where all my, my spreadsheets and I have a couple of videos on there. And you can also find me on the Rookie Fear podcast. And, and we're doing a lot of fun things over there. But guys, I had a lot of fun tonight. I love talking process. And we, you know, sometimes we, we reveal a little bit. I told Todd that I actually respect people with film. I actually listen to Todd. I think that we bridged some, bridged some rivers, some divides, some canyons tonight. Yeah, I got to say, I think it brought us closer together. And I expected it to tear us apart. So hats off to us. Growth. Todd, where can they find you and what do you have going on? I feel like I was in confession with Father B tonight with how many things I just like let out tonight. Just wanted to lead off at that. Woof. All right. You can find me at FF underscore Banterman on the Twitter machine. I'm blowing up on there. I'm almost at 700 followers. Eh, doesn't really matter that much to me, honestly. Boom. <laughs> yeah, no. Big Debbie guy. Definitely still big in the dynasty as like, you know, I'm on this podcast. My top 100 Debbie list will be dropping March 1st. I actually also didn't mention I am actually the Superflex and tight end premier ranker for IDP guys for this rookie class as well. And uh, I only got a top 30 up there. I spent at least make that into a top 50. But go ahead and look at my rankings. But hit me up on Twitter, man. I'm always down to talk. On top of that, still working with the rookie mag from the IDP guys and the Dynasty Vipers. That BMI conversation, I felt the need to have that conversation with Dave because I was doing one in Kenny Gainwell. I just knocked one out and. Terrence Marshall and Rondell Moore too. And that magazine is going to be absolutely fantastic. And I will be dropping more articles on Debbie for the IDP guys very soon. All right. Well, that does it for us here. Gentlemen, until next time. Tale of Two Rivals out. I think it was the zipper on my shirt. Is this better? Yeah. 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 That's a hundred percent what it was. It was grinding against the <laughs> zipper of my oh. the, the headphones. Wow. It was bad, dude. It was unbearable. <laughs> All right. Such a simple right. thing. Good God. Uh, uh, that's amazing. I kind of almost wish we had we keep that. I might put it in as the at the for freaking outtake. Okay, so he just did the tequila thing. Okay, we, I'll just. We might uh, need tequila again because it was bad. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Really sell me on this. You know, you can plug his show if you want. He probably wouldn't mind. Nah, I haven't watched it yet. You know, I need to see it before I plug it. Literally felt that was in <laughs>